0: Amen. Praise, Praise the Lord. What a wonderful song. You know, since Brother Stephen shortened the music some, I think I'm going to lengthen my sermon just a little. <laughs> too soon. Okay. All right. Um, but uh great joy to be with you uh, again tonight and looking forward to spending some more time with you this evening. Um, so, Uh, Let's continue the spirit of worship and uh, ask God for a blessing tonight. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how great you are. We look forward to the day when we will join the anthems of saints and angels singing of the greatness of our God. And we thank you again for the privilege to gather together tonight to open your scriptures, to hear a word from heaven, and we do ask, Lord, that you would speak. We do pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and to obey, and I pray tonight, Lord, that um, you would give us an incredible sense of awe and wonder like John Newton had. When he wrote those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let us never cease to be amazed at your grace, O Lord. Bless our time tonight. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, would you please turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and as we begin, I'd like for you to think with me about the world we live in, a fallen world, and, and no one denies that the world's broken. In fact, you talk to a person who's a non-Christian, and, you know, it's, it's clear, even to an, an unbeliever, that they can't escape this internal sense that they have that the world is not as it should be. Um, of course, the problem, and we as Christians know that it's ultimately a sin problem, but our our biggest problem is that we're, we can really easily identify sin that's out there, but we rarely think that the problem might be in here. We see all the evil in that world in in, in the world out there, but we're very slow to see the evil that's in here. You know, Think about, for example, you're driving down the road, you hit a stop, you you stop at a stop sign, and then someone's being careless, and they rear-end you, and you get out your car and you say, you better have insurance, (laughs) but then one day you're careless, and you don't you know you get a text that's you're not texting while you're driving but it, 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 the notification pops up and you turn your head for 1 second and boom you rear end to someone in front of you you get out your car and then you say then you say oh my goodness it's just a scratch oh my oh my goodness you you can't even see it don't even worry about it You see everyone wants justice Until you're on the wrong side of it. If you talk to an unbeliever, many times lots of people will say that the problem they have with Christianity and the Christian conception of God is is what the Bible teaches about hell. How can God condemn people to hell? How can, you know, what did we do? Who does he think he is? But let me tell you, that same person, if someone personally wrongs them, when they get in the courtroom, they will tell the judge, I want justice. Give the person what they deserve. Let me ask you something. Do you want to stand before God one day and tell, look him in the face and say, God, give me what I deserve? You see, We can only ask that question, how can God condemn sinners, if we don't understand God, if we don't think critically. But once we understand even just a smidgen of who God really is, we realize that there's a question that's actually much more problematic than how can God condemn sinners. The much more problematic question, if God is holy, 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 the question is how can God forgive sinners? And not deny his own justice. How can God be a good God if the world is full of evil people who deserve to be punished, and yet he shows them mercy? How is that right? Well, that's what we're going to, that's the question we're going to answer today. From Romans chapter 3. So if you're able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the word of God? As we begin in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The word of God. You may be seated. So there's three things that we're going to see tonight. We're going to see that the law shows us our in righteousness, that the gospel maintains God's righteousness, and that grace humbles those who are given righteousness. The law shows our in righteousness, the gospel maintains God's righteousness, and grace humbles those who are given righteousness. So first, the law shows us are in righteousness. Verses 19 and 20 again, whatever the law says, Paul Paul says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what is Paul saying? Well, First, it would be helpful, I think, to retrace what Paul has said up till this point in the book of Romans. So if you're familiar with the book of Romans, what Paul is doing is he, really one of his great burdens in the book of Romans is to show how God, through Christ, by grace, through faith, is saving not just Jews, but Gentiles, everybody. And the way that God is doing that is by faith. And and so the argument that Paul makes, beginning in chapter 1, is he begins by showing how everybody is under sin. In chapter 1, he's talking about uh, basically uh, that everyone is without excuse before God because we, everyone has knowledge of God because of creation. Everyone can look out in the world and know something of God, enough to be accountable to Him for their actions by their conscience. And yet, Everybody, even though they have knowledge of God and they're without excuse, the Bible says they suppress that knowledge of God. Why? So that they can embrace their sinful desires. One of the e- Think about it. One of the easiest ways that you if, if you, if you just simply want to live however you want, one of the easiest ways to do that is just say, oh, well, I don't believe in God. It's a way to salve your conscience because you can just tell yourself, well, if God's not real, then I can live however I want. And, and Paul says people suppress their knowledge of God in order to embrace their sinful desires. But then in chapter 2, up to this point, if you were a Jew and you were reading chapter 1, you would say, yeah, Paul, go get them pagan Gentile sinners. Call them out. And then Paul gets to chapter 2. And he says, what about you, you religious hypocrite? You think you have the law. You think you're good because you have the blood of Abraham running through your veins, but you don't have the faith of Abraham. And your sins are not as blatantly external as the Gentile pagan sinners are, but you're, but just as Jesus said, you're whitewashed tombs with dead man's bones on the inside. You, you, you're, you're full of pride and lust and envy and greed. In other words, you're just as spiritually dead and needy for the grace of God as any Gentile ever was. So then... He gets to chapter 3. And when we get to chapter 3, the question becomes this. If all of us then are condemned by God, slaves to sinful desires, and that we are unrighteous, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, and if God has this standard of righteousness that we're all required to uphold to, but we all fall short, then what hope do we have? Is there any hope for us who have fallen short of God's righteousness? And that's the answer we're going to talk about today. But in verses 19 and 20, Paul is explaining what the law does. So what does the law do? Paul says that it stops everyone's mouth, that it holds the whole world accountable to God. The law shows you how high God's standard of righteousness is. And the point is this, is to show you that you can't keep it. It's to show you that you don't measure up. It's to show you that you need God's grace. The Jews, of all people, were proud enough to say that we were okay because we had the law. They dared to justify themselves by the law. They dared to go before God. They dared to go before God and say, give me what I deserve. Look at me. They didn't understand that they, they were breakers of the law just as anyone else. So, all the law does, Paul says, is it gives us knowledge of sin. He says, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what does he mean by the word justify? It's an important theological term. It's a legal term, and it means to be declared righteous. So when you go into a, so when you go into a courtroom, what the law does, the law, if, you, if you're guilty, the law is not going to declare you righteous. If you're guilty and you have broken the law, when you go into a courtroom, what's the law going to do? It's going to do the opposite. It's going to declare you guilty. It's going to condemn you. It will not justify you. Justification is a is a is a is a term where we're declared righteous, but we all have a right. We all fall short of God's righteousness, and we need that. Is that we need a righteousness that we don't have? Now I want you to think about. The, most, the average person that you'll talk to, the average person that you'll talk to, you know, if you get into a spiritual conversation, you start talking about God and you may ask them, you know, you, you, may, you may be trying to, to share the gospel with them. And, and sometimes you may ask a question like, you know, well, do, do you think when you die, you'll go to heaven? And they may say, you know, I don't know, seven, seven times out of 10, they'll say something like this. I think so. I'm a pretty good person. I think so. I'm a pretty good person. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Let's just assume, for argument's sake, that God, on Judgment Day, that God won't judge us by his perfect standard of righteousness, but let's just assume that he's going to judge us by our own standard of righteousness that we held other people to. Okay? So, he's not even going to judge you by his standard. He's going to judge you by your own standard. You stand before God, and God says, Okay, let's look at your life. All right, well, you got mad at so and so when they, they lied to you about this. All right, let's see every time you lie. Every time you cheated. Every time you deceived. Every time you cut a corner. You got mad at so and so. You got mad at so and so for, um, for um, you know, uh, cheating on his wife or something. All right, well, let's see how many times you've lusted, how, much, how, how many times you've watched pornography. Let's look at your life. Let's, if God judged us by our own standard of righteousness, we would all be condemned. And we want to go to God and say, God, judge me by yours. Brothers and sisters, we need grace. We need grace. So all the law does is it shows us our sin. And so if we take anything away from this, what we must what we must take away is that we cannot dare to go to God and say, God, give me what I deserve. We cannot dare go to God and look to the law like the Jews did as a means of our own justification. So the law, it it teaches the law, this text teaches us. Shows us our unrighteousness. But next, we're going to see that the gospel maintains God's righteousness. This is in verses 21 through 26. Paul says, But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, if we are condemned, if we are all unrighteous, is there any possible way then that, we, that God can show mercy on us by us being able to stand as righteous before God? Is there any hope that we can have a righteousness if it's not our own? Is there any hope that we can have a righteousness from somewhere else? And God And Paul says, yes. A righteousness of God has now been revealed, manifested, verse 21, apart from the law, although in the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What's what's Paul saying? He's, He's saying this. Yes, there is a righteousness that you can get that's not yours that God can give you as a gift by grace. And it can't come through the law, but the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, the Old Testament talked about it, it prophesied about it, it foretold it. And what is this righteousness? Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is a righteousness that you can receive that's not yours, that you receive as a gift, verse 24, by his grace, that you receive as a gift through faith in Christ, and that God credits, this is the the clearest text in the Bible on how our salvation actually occurs. God credits Christ's righteousness to your account. You stand in the courtroom about to be declared guilty and Jesus Christ kicks in the door and says, take me. And you get his freedom. You get his life. His death counts as your death. And your sin is paid for. It's atoned for. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see it? Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, who has never once even had the slightest inkling to ever disobey God. And when you believe in him, God the Father looks at you as if you were Jesus Christ. When, when Jesus Christ was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on Christ like a dove. And the, the God the Father thundered down from heaven and said, My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And when you have exercise true faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father looks down on you and says, Look, my beloved Son. My beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased, you get Christ's commendation. Because through faith you unite with him. And all his benefits become yours. We are viewed as living Christ's life, as dying Christ's death, as living in the resurrection power of Christ uh, uh, rising from the dead. It's a gift, Paul says, that it's received by faith. This is important. It's huge. It's a gift. Gift, by definition, is something that can't be earned. Lots of people, lots of people, they think, I mean, essentially, when you you say, well, I'm a pretty good person, basically what you're saying is that I think I've been good enough so that God owes me heaven. I mean, that's... You don't want to say it like that, but that's what you're saying. When you say, I'm a pretty good person, I think I'll get to heaven, what you're saying is that I think I've been good enough for God to, for God to kind of owe me heaven. If he doesn't give me heaven, he'd probably be kind of bad wrong for it. People think that it's like a scale, it's just like a simple 50-50 balance. If you've got one more good deed than you do righteous deed, you tip the scale and you get in. Think about this for a minute. Um, Todd Wilkin wrote this illustration about if we tried to pull this kind of stunt in a courtroom, what it might sound like Uh, in a fictional murder trial. and, And this is what he writes, quote, this is the defendant, defendant trying to defend himself. This is what he says, quote, members of the jury, I am not asking for mercy or pardon. I want justice. I am demanding full acquittal. Yes, I committed the murder of which I'm accused, but I am not guilty. Members of the jury, you must consider all my good deeds as not merely mitigating circumstances, but as a reason for exonerating me. The goodness of my other deeds outweighs the crime I committed. My good deeds require a not guilty verdict. If justice is to be done, you must find me innocent. Well, that's just ridiculous. But that's what we're doing when we come to God and say, "Look, God, my, I've done more good than bad. You have to declare me innocent." But, but if you, pile, it doesn't matter how much good deeds you pile on top of your bad deeds; they don't make your bad deeds go away. And sin, of course, and, and sin, of course, is an issue of the heart. And so what this means is that we all, God says, must be saved by grace. And what is so incredible about this teaching is that Paul is using it as an argument to support his broader argument for how both Jew and Gentile alike are saved by Christ. So he's not just explaining it in and of itself— but he's using the fact that we're saved by grace to support his larger argument that God saves both Jew and Gentile alike. Because think about it, Jews thought they were special, but Paul is saying, no, nobody's special. Nobody has a special place before God. We all sinners, we all fall short, therefore all are equally saved. The, The grace of God is the great equalizer. Because nobody can come to God and claim special status. Nobody can come to God and say, look what I've done. We all come to God as beggars. The cross levels the world. Religious or irreligious, it doesn't matter. You need grace. Flagrant sinner or religious hypocrite, it doesn't matter. You need grace. You're... When you die, it will not matter one, one iota how much money you had in the bank, what your job title was, what the color of your skin was, what your cultural preference was, what kind of music you liked. Whether you were the President of the United States or a beggar on the street, none of those things will commend you to God. We're all equally unrighteous and we all equally need grace. And how does this grace work? How does it achieve for us? Paul says that God gave us grace in that God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The word propitiation means a satisfaction of wrath such that God who was Angry and wrathful toward our sins, that his wrath has been satisfied in the person of Christ, so that now God becomes propitious towards us. That is, favorable. He, his wrath has been satisfied. Like we talked about this morning, Jesus Christ said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you would never have to. You would never have to be forsaken. So what does all this do? What does all this do? Paul says that again, the, burden, the the question that the question that we raise that he's trying to answer is complete opposite that the one we ask today. People ask today, how can a, how can a how can a God condemn sinners? But Paul is actually right now he's burdened to kind of show he he recognizes he has a problem in God's justice. How can a just God forgive sinners? And And Paul recognizes the problem because in the past, God had overlooked previous sins. God did not deal with sins as he ought to have. He didn't punish sins in people as he ought to have done. And and this put into question God's justice. Is Is God just sweeping sin under the rug? But Paul says, no. How? How could God do this? Paul says it's because God was looking forward. To one day on the cross when darkness would cover the land. And God's wrath would give sin its just due. But not on the ones who actually committed it, but on a substitute. The God, man, Jesus Christ. In Christ In order for God to be just, somebody had to pay for sin. So God sent Christ as propitiation for our sins to be received by faith the clearest text that teaches this is Isaiah chapter 53 and it's worth reading at length beginning in verse 4 says surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Listen, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This was all no accident. God knew exactly what he was doing. Pinned by the by Isaiah 700 years before Christ came, God knew he was going to send a A sacrifice, someone to bear the sin, the iniquity of his people. But he, out of the anguish of his soul, he says, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one shall cause many to be accounted righteous. So then, in Christ, Paul says, because of the the payment for sin that Christ made on behalf of sinners... The Bible says that God, therefore, can be both just and still be the justifier of sinners. God can still be just and the one who declares righteous, the unrighteous sinner. Because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for sin. So the law shows us our unrighteousness. And then the gospel maintains God's righteousness. And finally, grace humbles those who are given righteousness. Grace humbles those who are given righteousness. We see this in verse 27 through 31. Paul says, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul is saying this. If we could be justified by our works, we would have something to boast about we could come before we could we could stand before god and say hey look at me look what i've done i was smart enough to do this i was i was you know lucky enough to be part of this family i was wise enough to make this decision that we would be able to boast before god if we were saved by our works if that was even possible but in ephesians and 9 paul says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is a gift of god not a result Not a result of work so that no one may boast. It's a gift. Can you you imagine being boastful about a gift? You know, I mean, actually, we do. We do that. That's how sinful we are. We say, oh, look at this. So-and-so gave it to me. But we boast about it. Why? Because deep down we feel like we kind of deserve it. But imagine receiving a gift that you know that you in no possible way deserved. What does that do? Man, that humbles you. It makes you feel low. It makes you feel small. And that's good. (laughs) That's what grace does. The wonder of grace is this. Grace tells you that you are a horribly wretched sinner. And yet in spite of your wretchedness, you are relentlessly and indestructibly loved by a holy God. The grace of God says, you deserve nothing, you deserve less than nothing. And yet God has given Jesus Christ to have you. Nothing's like the grace of God because it both humbles you of yourself but it gives you incredible confidence in the love of God. It takes your eyes off yourself and focuses you on a great and merciful God. There's nothing like the grace of God. We stand before God completely righteous as if we had never sinned. We're glorious. But it's because we're wearing someone else's glory. And would we dare stand in another's righteousness and then try to boast about our own? Grace teaches us that the only way to come to God is as a beggar. If you're you're too proud to recognize your neediness and come to God as a beggar, you can't come. You can't be saved. But if you realize the desperate state that you're in in your sin and you come to God as a beggar and you come and say, you come like the prodigal son and say, treat me as one of your slaves. God says, bring me a gold ring, bring me the white rose, my son who is dead is now alive. You come as a beggar and he makes you rich that's what the grace of God does so if we rightly understand the grace of God we would we there would never be a proud Christian there would never be an unforgiving Christian because we'd recognize where we would be without the God without the grace of God there would never be a condescending Christian we would never look at one and say how could you because you know how they could, and you know how you could, if it wasn't for the grace of God in your life. Let us not forget how amazing grace is. And as we conclude, I'd like to conclude with a poem and a prayer. A poem and a prayer. I saw one... Hanging on a tree in agony and blood, he fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace it seals my pardon too. Oh, can it be upon a tree the Savior died for me? My soul is thrilled, my heart is filled to think he died for me. If there's anyone in here today that maybe for the first time you've seen the radical nature of the grace of God. Then come, run, cry out to him for grace and he'll give it. We're going to sing a, a final song in just a moment. As the Lord leads you, please.